If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to Genesis chapter 12. If you don't have a copy of the Bible or on your device, there are uh, copies made available in the pew in front of you or in the, the, the drawer just under, uh, under the pews. Please turn to Genesis chapter 12. And if you'd like also a passage I'm going to turn our attention to later in this message is Hebrews 11. If you just want to put a finger there or a little pen in your Bible or something like that, we begin this morning a new sermon series. We have been through the summer, as we do every summer, a series of sermons in the Psalms. But this morning we begin a new series in Genesis chapter 12. And I'd like you to follow along as I read verses 1 through 9. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him whom dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward Negev. I want to begin this morning by addressing the children here. We're so glad that children gather in these worship gatherings with us and hope that even as we meet by week, you kids are finding help in these times when we consider God's Word. I hope you kids are doing daily devotions. I don't know if you use that term. Some people use the term quiet time. I grew up with the phrase devotions. Basically, I'm envisioning a time where you kids, like hopefully all the adults here as well, are able to get alone with God's Word and to read His Word, to consider what God has said in the Bible, and then to pray to God. Um, daily devotions, quiet time, whatever you call it, does not need to be any more complicated than that. But if you're a child and you're old enough to read, I hope that you're doing your devotions daily. And, um, and if you are doing your devotions, and if you're new to doing devotions, I think one of the best things you can do, kids, is to read the Gospels. The gospel accounts. You know what the gospels are, right? They're the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe because there's a lot of overlap between the gospels. Maybe the best thing you do is read Matthew and then go read another portion of Scripture and then come back to Mark and then read another portion of Scripture and then come back to Luke and to John, etc. When I first started doing daily devotions as a child, I began in the gospel of Matthew, which is a great way to start. I don't know if there was a fly there or something. But Matthew is an excellent place to start. If you're just getting started with daily devotions, it's a great place to start if you want to study God's Word. Interestingly enough, though, if you start the Gospel of Matthew and you begin in chapter 1, essentially the first person you're introduced to is a man named Abraham. So I'm going to read the first two verses of Matthew chapter 1, first book of the New Testament. We read there the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And then the text goes on to name all these generations and all these fathers and grandfathers uh, all the way down to Jesus Christ. Now, you might feel 
If this is your first time reading the Bible, very lost in the first chapter of Matthew, if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, particularly the story of this man named Abraham. After all, does anybody really care who Jesus' great, 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 great grandfather was? I don't know if I had all the greats in there to get to Abraham. It's not the way you would begin a book if you were trying to produce a bestseller, to begin with a genealogy of all these different ones, names that are hard to pronounce, leading all the way down to Jesus. But one of the things we're going to learn is that everything depends on the fact that Jesus is the son of Abraham. And if he's not the son of Abraham, listen kids, none of us can be saved. If Jesus does not come from the line of Abraham, we are without hope and without God in the world. That's something we're going to see over the coming weeks. So over the next couple of months, I want to tell Abraham's story as it is presented to us in Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 22. But the story is not just told in Genesis 12 through 22. What we discover if we read the New Testament is that Abraham comes up again and again and again. In fact, his name is used 75 times or so in the New Testament. 2,000 years after he lived, that's when the New Testament was written, a little over 2,000 years after Abraham lived, people are still talking about this man, Abraham. And now here we are 4,000 years or so after Abraham lived, and I'm preaching a series of sermons on this man, Abraham. And I'm preaching this series about him because he is an immensely important figure in the Bible, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. There's an interesting observation I just want to highlight here up front that I think is important for us to remember. I heard someone say recently that the New Testament, the New Testament, is utterly unintelligible without the Old Testament. Like you can't possibly understand all that's going on in the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. We see that right away in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. There's all kinds of narratives and storylines that are converging in that opening statement, the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But if you don't know the Old Testament and you don't know who David is and you don't know who Abraham is and you don't know of the covenants that God entered into with those particular men and the people they represented, you're not going to understand the cosmic significance of that opening line of the New Testament, Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I can illustrate it this way. I really try to avoid Lord of the Rings illustrations, okay? And if you've been here for the last four years, you know maybe one or two the whole time you've been here, okay? But the Lord of the Rings trilogy of books, there's The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. Maybe, maybe you just watch the movie, and if that's you, shame on you. You've got to read the books first, and then watch the movie. Kids, that's what you're supposed to do, okay? Read the book first, then the movie. But, but suppose, and this illustration does work best if you actually have no idea what the story of Lord of the Rings is. Imagine that I invited you over to my home and said, look, I know you've never seen or read Lord of the Rings, but come over to my house. We're going to watch the second book in the trilogy, or second movie in the trilogy. We're going to watch The Two Towers. And as the movie starts, you appreciate that Gimli the dwarf and Legolas the elf and Aragorn, he's a man and he's heir to the throne of Gondor, they're running across the fields of Rohan, and they're chasing down two hobbits that have been kidnapped by the servants of this wizard named Saruman, and um, that's because Saruman thinks that these two hobbits have the ring of power, um, and that leads to a simultaneous narrative that's going on, and that is that there are two other hobbits in a different scene named Frodo and Sam, and they are uh, wandering their way, trying to make their way to Mount Doom, which is this big volcano kind of thing, and they're trying to destroy the ring of power, of course, because that's the only thing pure-hearted people can do, um, but they don't exactly know the way, and so they're being guided by Smeagol, who, by the way, is also Gollum. It's a little complicated. And yes, he wants to kill them, but there's this sick relationship whereby he becomes their guide, even as he kind of wants to kill them as well. Now, you might have a few questions, right? Okay, so what is a dwarf and what's an elf? I thought those were kind of similar things, but the elf looks pretty tall and the dwarf looks pretty short. I'm not sure I get what's going on here. And okay, so there's a man too, so is this kind of fantasy and real life 
merging together. And what's this thing about a ring and trying to destroy it in a volcano? I don't get what's going on here. I'm lost. And why would they have the guy who wants to kill them leading them on the way there? Well, see, if we went back and we watched The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first book, you would come to appreciate the setting forth of these characters and these complex narratives and sort of the rules and the framework of the whole world of Middle-earth and Lord of the Rings. And if you did that first, well, all of a sudden, everything happening in those opening sequences of the two towers would be filled with meaning and relevance. You would understand exactly kind of where things are going and how these storylines cross each other. That's an illustration, an imperfect illustration, but an illustration nonetheless of how the Old Testament and the New Testament work together. The Old Testament sets forth all these categories and all these promises and all these narratives. And from the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels, the New Testament writers pick up those narratives and are showing how Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, our Savior, the Son of God, how He fits in and fulfills all these various narratives and institutions and figures that were prefigured in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of people in our day begrudge Old Testament preaching. They see it as in some ways going backwards. And indeed, if you preach the Old Testament in the way that a Jewish rabbi would teach the Old Testament, then I suppose we are going backwards. But I don't plan to teach in these weeks the life of Abraham as the Jews would teach it. I want to teach about Abraham in the way Jesus and many of the other New Testament writers teach about Abraham. Because you see, Abraham is often lurking in the background in the gospel accounts. He features prominently in at least a couple or few of the apostolic sermons in the book of Acts. He's hugely significant in the thought of the apostle Paul, especially in the books of Romans and Galatians. You're not going to understand Paul's arguments and his theology in those books if you don't understand something of Abraham's story. He's also crucial, as our brother Zach highlighted this morning in, in the equip class, He's hugely significant in uh, the story of the book of James and the theology of that particular book. He also features prominently in the book of Hebrews. Abraham is one of the most important figures in the Bible. And I'll just say, just as an aside, as a general rule, if you want to understand the Old Testament and how the Old Testament and the New Testament relate to one another, it's a lot of material I know. If you could study three major figures in particular, you'll get most of it down. The three figures that sort of tower over all the others in the Old Testament are Abraham, Moses, and David. If you study their lives and the covenants that God entered into with those figures, you'll be well on your way to understanding how the Bible and the Testaments fit together. Well, if Jesus tarries, I hope to do another series on the life of Moses at some time in the future, and another series on the life of David. But for these weeks, these couple of months, God being our helper, we will consider in this new series the life of Abraham. I want to focus in this series of sermons in a special way on the high points of Abraham's life. So I'm not going to consider every detail of his biography, I want to consider the highlights, the high points of Abraham's life, and specifically focus in on some of the ways the New Testament reflects back on Abraham's story. So what that means is at points in this series, we will slow down and try to take in the New Testament perspective on various events that take place in Abraham's life, and at other points, we'll accelerate, maybe doing a chapter or two at a time. But the goal being to give a fair treatment to Abraham's life, and especially to show how New Covenant believers ought to reflect on this significant man of God. So before giving you my points this morning, my headings, I want to ask, you're in Genesis 12, just look back in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 27. We have kind of the setting of context here. I want you to have this in your minds, and then I'll expound, God willing, uh, verses 1 through 2 of chapter 12. In Genesis 11, beginning in verse 27, we read this. Now these are the generations of Terah. You won't see this exactly in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's signified here in verse 27, this is a very significant sort of turn of the chapter in the book of Genesis. A new section is starting in Moses' book. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. Okay, so Abram is Abraham. 
He's going to change his name at a later date. God's going to change his name. And I'm just going to say, I'm going to go back and forth this whole sermon between Abram and Abraham. I'm going to try to say Abram every time, but I'm sure I'm going to lapse at some point. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now, just note, she's later going to have her name changed to Sarah. And the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah, verse 30. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So these verses here, kind of the prequel to what happens in Genesis 12, verse 1, first of all identifies Terah as Abram's father. Terah is the father of Abraham and uh, Abram. And even though Terah is said to have lived 205 years and to have died, he actually doesn't die till a much later time. He's probably only 150 years old when Abram receives his call in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. So he's still alive during most of Abram's narrative. Uh, we also learn that the family's background is an Ur of the Chaldeans, a center of idolatry and paganism. We learn also that Sarai, she's identified as Abram's wife. And we read just this one detail that's given about Sarai, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. A spoiler alert, that's going to be a really important detail to the story that the Lord is working through the life of Abram and Sarai. And then finally, we see that Lot is identified as Abram's, sort of like his adopted nephew. So his father died, Abram took Lot sort of as an adopted son in some ways. Chapter 12 now presents the call of Abram and the initial promises that make up what is called the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God is initiating with Abram. Now, this morning, this is part one of two sermons in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Next week, I want us to look at these promises in great detail because they're sort of programmatic for Abraham's life and for the book of Genesis, but not only for the book of Genesis, they're programmatic sort of like for the whole story of the rest of the Bible. So today we're not going to consider these promises in detail. I'll, I'll survey them, but we're not going to consider them in detail. Next week we'll look at these promises more carefully. I simply want to look this morning at the call of Abram itself. I have four headings this morning. Consider with me first of all God's election of Abram. God's election of Abram. Now, I'm not going to expound for you now the first 11 chapters of Genesis, but I just want to remind you of some of what has happened if you're not familiar with these first 11 chapters. Of course, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have the creation of the world and the creation of mankind, male and female. In chapter 3, you have the fall, or what we often call the fall. Uh, Eve is tempted and seduced by the serpent who tempts her to eat of the fruit that God had forbidden that she and Adam eat, and she takes and she eats, questioning God's authority and wishing to make herself like God, and she takes that fruit and she gives it to her husband Adam, and he eats with her, and they plunge the human race into sin and death. It is a very dark chapter. Uh, arguably the darkest chapter in the Bible. Through their cosmic rebellion against God, the human race is plunged into ruin and misery and sin that continues on down even to this day. But then, if you're, if you're reading fairly quickly, you could almost miss this. In verse 15, we have just the beginning seeds of a promise, just a little sort of shoot or a blossom of promise. That's actually even an overstatement. It's just like a little seed that's planted in the ground. What we read in Genesis 3.15, God says in the midst of, of the sinfulness and rebellion of Adam and Eve, He says to the serpent, He says, I will put enmity between the woman's seed and your seed. God's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And then He says, her seed will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. There's this promise. Again, you could almost miss it if you're reading quickly, that the seed of the woman, whatever that means, the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. 
And you might wonder, there's sort of a veil of mystery over this. What is it that's going to happen? What is it that the Lord is envisioning? What is it that He's prophesying? But, but the Lord doesn't elaborate on that promise. Very quickly, the narrative shifts, and we focus in a major way on mankind, and particularly mankind's sinfulness. In chapter 4 of Genesis, what do we have? Cain murders his brother Abel in cold blood. This is a vicious act of sin and rebellion. Cain murders his brother in cold blood. Go through chapter 5, many more sins of men recorded. You get to chapter 6, and you read this stinging indictment that is made of all mankind at that point in the world. Chapter 6, verse 5, we read, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just a stinging indictment of mankind in sin and in rebellion against God. And what happens? God floods the earth in judgment against mankind, but He saves Noah and his family who enter into the ark with with, uh, pairs of animals. And the Lord works deliverance for Noah and his family even as He wipes out the rest of the human race and begins afresh with Noah and his family. And of course, the Lord promises to never flood the world again. The Lord gives the rainbow as the sign of the promise to Noah. And yet, once again, the sinfulness of man sort of takes center stage after the flood. You have in the Genesis chapter 9, you have the affair with Ham who exposes his father's nakedness, and he seeks to bring his brothers in on it, this great act of shame and a way of mocking and jeering at their father, and Ham is subsequently cursed. In chapter 10, you have what's called the table of nations. Then in chapter 11, does anyone know what happens in Genesis chapter 11? You have the Tower of Babel. The people of Babel in an act of extraordinary sinful hubris and pride in an effort to make a name for themselves, they build this tower up to the heaven as a way of sort of putting them on par with God. And what does God do? God confuses their languages so that they cannot understand each other, and this sinful and rebellious project is brought to ruin. And then we get to Terah and his family and his son Abram. You're just sort of overwhelmed reading the first 11 chapters of Genesis by how dark and sinful the world is. If you're tempted to have sort of a progressive and optimistic anthropology, optimistic view of mankind, you need to reckon with Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Whenever I read that portion of Scripture, I don't know if you feel this way, just sort of a cloud comes over my heart. It's just, it's just tragic. It's just strikingly sad to witness the darkness and the perversity and the immorality and sinfulness of man outside of God. I had a pastor when I was in high school. He got his doctorate at Bob Jones University, and he wrote his dissertation on the book of Genesis, and he titled his dissertation, Where Sin Abounds, which I think is a very fit description of the whole book, if not just chapters 1 through 11. But you sort of get to the end of chapter 11, and you just kind of are groaning within yourself. How are we going to get out of this whole sinful mess? How are we going to find a way through the darkness of our sins as human beings? And children, I say this to you, this is always the problem. You know this, right? What are we going to do with our sins? How are we going to get out of this sinful mess? Is there any hope for us? Is there any, any hope for sinners like us? Any forgiveness? Any redemption? What's going to happen? And by the way, what happened to the promise that 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 little seed that was planted in Genesis 3.15, it's like it's been overwhelmed and covered up by the sinfulness and darkness and perversion of mankind. What's happened to the promise? What we have in Genesis 12 is God acting to revive the promise. God is acting to revive the promise of redemption. Sort of all of the sudden, against the backdrop of the sinfulness of man trying to find a way on his own, all of the sudden, God enters the narrative again with unilateral and gracious action. And that faint promise that began in Genesis 3.15, it's all of a sudden revived again. The seed through which deliverance from all this sin would come is brought to light again, this time with greater focus and greater clarity and more revelation. What we have in Genesis 12 is an account of God's determination to act on behalf of His elect people. God is now going to change the story. 
God is going to reveal more of His purposes through which salvation and blessing would come. But what I want you to appreciate under this first point is that this calling of Abram is the product of God's sovereign, gracious, and unconditional election alone. You'll notice Abram doesn't volunteer for the job. It's not as though Abram distinguished himself in some way. There's no evidence that he was looking for God or that he even knew who God was. He doesn't choose God. God chooses him. God wasn't responding to anything in Abram. And friends, he's not responding to anything in us when he saves us. It's not like he saw that Abram had lots of potential. It's not like he saw that Abram was was really bright. He was a really exceptional talent, and so I'll go with him. He's not responding to anything in Abram at all. Rather, God is unilaterally working his saving purposes through Abram. It's implied that Abram was worshiping other gods in pagan lands, and God calls him out of pagan idolatry and into his gracious purposes. You may say, well, why should we think that Abram was worshiping other gods? I don't see that in the text. Well, there's two things to highlight. First of all, Abram grew up and was nurtured in a land, Ur of the Chaldeans, that was notable for its pagan idolatry. It was a center for idol worship. That's where Abram is reared. That's the cradle in which he is raised. But also, we read in Joshua 24, verses 2 through 3, these words. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So here are the words of the Lord. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Now listen to this, verse 3. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and I made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. You see what's emphasized, God's sovereign purposes, His divine election, God taking center stage, God acting to bring about redemption. Mankind left on His own when He is occupying center stage brings Himself and humanity into sinful ruin. But when God acts, as He acts on behalf of Abram, indeed all of His elect people, what is emphasized is His sovereign grace at work alone. God is working to change this story. So Abram grew up in a family that worshipped other gods. We have no indication that Abram had any attachment to Yahweh prior to the call in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The point being that there was nothing to commend Abram. In fact, there was everything to condemn Abram. He was no different than all the other sinful and rebellious and recalcitrant sinners in the book of Genesis. He was a pagan idolater from Ur, worthy of the judgment of God, but God, in electing love, chose him. And God determined to work His purposes through Abram. And it's clear in the narrative that God is going to act not only on Abram's behalf, but on behalf of all His elect from among the nations who will be blessed through Abram's seed, which means, brothers and sisters, in God's election of Abram, we have God's election of us, we who are the people of God. God, in His acting on Abram's behalf, is acting on our behalf. And here's the point. God might have left the human race behind without hope. Would He not be righteous? Would He not be justified? turning his back on sinful humanity. The nations of the world might forever be, as Paul describes them in Ephesians chapter 2, without hope and without God in the world. But that won't happen because in the process of time, in his own electing love, God chose Abram from among the pagan nations, and he entered into a special covenant with him, and through him, blessing and deliverance will come to the world. And so we need to see what's really happening here. Here is God intervening in electing love and changing the story. Here is God acting on behalf of sinful men and women. God chose Abram, not for any good that he had done, but that God's purpose of election might stand and be fulfilled. One of the clearest lessons we learn from God's call of Abram in Genesis 12 is that salvation will ever and only be all of God. And the story we're going to tell over the next couple of months is a story of what God has done. 
and what it is that He is doing. And I just want us to appreciate at this point, we'll talk about this next week, but we need to appreciate that all of our hope of salvation, like today, 4,000 years later, all of our hope for salvation is bound up in God's sovereign and gracious purpose in visiting pagan, idolatrous Abram in the land of Ur, along with his barren wife, so that salvation could come to the nations and so that we could come too to know the Lord. That's God's election of Abram. Consider with me, secondly, God's call to Abram. God's election to Abram, God's call to Abram. God comes and reveals Himself to Abram, and what does He tell him to do? Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. What's the basic command? What's the call? The call is to go, to go from your country to the land that I will show you. Now, God, as we read on, we learn He's going to work blessing for Abram, blessing through Abram beyond what he could ever imagine, even beyond the limits of what his own faith could anticipate. In Abram's case, God would indeed do abundantly beyond what he could have asked or thought or anticipated, but the promise does not come without this call, without this command. God calls Abram to go. He requires obedience from Abram. Indeed, He requires obedience from all who are to be His people. Abram is to go from his country, from his kindred, and from his father's house, and he's to go to the land that God will show him. And I think the way Moses, the author of Genesis, phrases these statements, I think in the writing of this verse, this command emphasizes the costliness of Abram's obedience. God is calling Abram to radical obedience. Yes, God is going to wonderfully bless Abram, but it will require Abram to turn his back on everything. God tells him, look again at verse 1, you must leave your country, your kindred, and your father's house. In other words, give up everything to follow me. Just think of what this would entail for Abram, leaving behind his idolatry and all of his customs, leaving behind his father who's advanced in age, leaving behind his kindred and his countrymen, leaving behind all of his security and embracing the very dangerous life of a nomad. This isn't like moving from Winston-Salem to Charlotte, okay? Uh, or, or it's not like even moving from the United States to the UK or to Japan. Or, or, or to Russia or something like that. We live in a global world. It's not too hard to cross different borders and expect that the rule of law will be upheld and there will be safety for citizens of other countries, at least in most countries in the world today. Abram was taking upon himself the life of a nomad, a sojourner. And sojourners and refugees and nomads were not treated well in these days. Abram's giving up all the security of his land and his father's house. And he's going to be a sojourner in lands not his own. And he will be subsequently very vulnerable as he travels from place to place. But the simple point I want us to see here is that this call required real obedience from Abram. It required a cost for Abram. He had to get up. He had to gather his things. He had to go. He had to leave his family. And he had to be willing to be a nomad and a sojourner on the face of the earth. God's call, though gracious and full of promise and blessing, nonetheless requires obedience. Okay, so it's at this point I just want to share a couple points of application. And don't lose heart. The final two points of this outline are going to be much shorter than the first two. But a couple points of application. One of the commentators on this passage notes at this point, he says this, the call of God always trumps loyalty to family. The call of God always trumps loyalty to family. Now, I don't think what I'm about to share now is like the main application of this passage. It's important you know that. Like, I don't think it's the main point of the passage. But in light of something I do see in the passage, I just want to make a point of application here to our church family. Okay, I just want to lean in here. I think in our American culture, I think also in our wider sort of evangelical church culture, and I'd even argue perhaps 
in like reformed culture, if you know what that term means, culture that treasures reformed theology, we can sometimes be led into thinking that a sort of hyper-commitment to family is somehow an expression of great godliness. That, that the kind of perspective in which everything in life revolves around family commitment, that somehow that is a great expression of true piety and godliness. I assure you that perspective is wrong. In fact, again and again, repeatedly throughout the Bible, the exact opposite point is made. That faithfulness to God, obedience to God, will often require that tension enter into family relationships. That the pathway of obedience will sometimes, not every time, but sometimes require that we forsake father and mother, that we leave certain relationships, that the relationships and dynamics in our families begin to change because of an attachment to God and His will, and particularly His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm trusting you. you you've heard my sermons in this place. We talk about the importance of family, the importance of parenting well. Please put every necessary qualification on what I'm saying. And if what I'm saying is confusing you, please come and talk to me after the service or make an appointment with me this week. But I do have, I'm just speaking heart to heart as your pastor, I do have this concern that we can confuse a hyper-attachment to family, a hyper-commitment to family as somehow an expression of the Lord's will to us and fail to recognize that often the pathway of obedience to God's call may lead us to take less commitments with family may in some cases lead us away from our extended families. I told you we're celebrating our four-year anniversary as a church this week, and around this time of the year I always get very sentimental and nostalgic, and if you show me a certain picture, I'll just start crying. I'm not trying to flatter anybody or embarrass anybody, okay? But the reality is in the providence of God, this church doesn't get planted without a few couples who purposed to leave father and mother and come to plant this church. There were people who pulled kids out of private schools and left parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins all around to come and plant this church. There are people who pulled out of work settings, had to disappoint some family in terms of how often they were going to be around because they were coming, heeding the call of God to plant this church. Parents, I hope, I hope, you make it easy for your children to heed the call of God, even if the call of God requires them to be in a setting or to take on a role that's going to take them far away from the nest. One of the saddest things in the world to me, in the Christian world, and I have someone in my mind right now as I say this, not here in this church, friend of mine, one of the saddest things in the world to me, do you know one of the main reasons why people don't go to the mission field? I can hear it in my head right now, well, we can't leave mom and dad. You know, they would never let us go. Like the expectation is clear, we gotta we got be home, we gotta be close to our security network, gotta have family nearby. Parents, I hope you don't take that kind of disposition towards your kids. I recognize I'm far away from the text now, but maybe not so far away. The pathway of obedience for Abram specifically required that he said goodbye to his father. At some point, he had to sit down with Terah and explain, I'm leaving home. I'm leaving everything that I hold dear. Maybe he said to his father, I want you to come with me. I, I've learned from Yahweh, the God who is, that this idolatry is not something that we can live in that this is rebellion against the true and living God. I want you to come with me, but if you can't, I have to heed the call of God and I have to go. The simple point is this. Sometimes the pathway of obedience will take us away from family commitment. But there is something larger and more obvious to say. The larger point is that obedience is always costly. It always requires us to make conscious choices. It always requires sacrifice. It always requires laying something down in order to pick something up. Abram was called of God to obey. That meant he had to leave Ur. He had to leave his father. He had to leave his country in order to follow the Lord and pursue the path of obedience. This was nothing other than repentance for Abram. 
And again, I don't want to over-spiritualize this passage, but what is that kind of Ur of the Chaldeans thing for you? Is there a place you need to leave or a relationship you need to leave or a substance you need to leave or a certain sin that you're clinging on to that you have to leave in order to obey God and enter into His promise of blessing? Are there things in your life that you have to turn your back on in order to repent and to put your faith in God and to embrace the promises that He has for all those who believe upon Him in repentance and faith? I'll say, brothers and sisters, our situation is no different than Abram's here now in the New Covenant. The call of the gospel is no different. Jesus says things like, you must leave all and follow me. You must take up your cross. Well, listen, I need to go bury my father. What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their own dead. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He says elsewhere, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. You find that treasure, what do you do? He says in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. We're called to count the costs. Responding to even the call of the gospel is costly. Mark 10, 29-30, may this be a comfort to anyone here who has left father and mother or has left a job or left a certain circle of friends, has been ostracized by a certain community, has give up things to follow Jesus. Mark 10, verse 29 and 30, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. There's nothing you can give up that is worth more than the everlasting life promised in the gospel. And that was revealed to Abram. The call brings with it a call to follow God and to go where He leads. We must be ready and willing to forsake the things God calls us to forsake and to embrace the path in which He purposes to guide us. And in so doing, we are following our father Abram who had to get up and go. All right, third heading. More quickly now. God's election of Abram, God's call to Abram. Thirdly, God's promises to Abram. Look again at the passage, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And here are the promises, verses 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Man, I want to preach my message for next week, but I'm going to exercise self-control and hold off for now. I'm going to expound these promises next week, but I need to mention them this morning so you could understand the rest of the passage in context. All I want you to see under this point today is that the establishing of the relationship with Abram, or the relationship between Abram and God is based not on Abram's obedience, but on God's gracious promise. God is initiating a new relationship with Abram. Abram would become the object of God's covenant love and gracious blessing. God is going to overwhelm Abram's life with blessing beyond what he could have hoped for, and he's going to work through him in ways he could never have anticipated. The call is not just to obey. The call is a gracious call filled with promise. And all Abram must do is go. All he must do is believe. All he must do is have faith that God is going to lead him. The call is a gracious call filled with promise. And these unilateral promises from God are the basis of the relationship. Listen to this. God's covenant commitment and covenant promises created the entire framework and context for Abram's faith and Abram's obedience. His obedience and faith are unintelligible outside the context of God's promises. In fact, they have no meaning outside the context of God's promises. God's promises and His grace and His mercy establish the relationship. And Abram's obedience and faith only have meaning 
in that context. Well, we'll look at those promises in greater depth next week. That's a teaser to next week. Consider with me the fourth and final point. We've seen God's election of Abram, God's call to Abram, God's promises to Abram. Now, fourthly and finally, Abram's faith-filled obedience. Abram's faith-filled obedience. Verse four, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Simply put, Abram obeyed the Lord. He responded with obedience, and we can see reading on in verse 4 what this obedience involved. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Moran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. God tells him to go, and we read, Abram went as the Lord had told him. Okay, now here's what I want us to appreciate. This was not for Abram blind obedience. Like, I don't know who you are or what you're saying, but sure, I'll do this. This was not obedience rendered to establish the relationship with God. Here's the crucial point. This was obedience born of faith. Faith in God and faith in God's promise. All true obedience, brothers and sisters, must be born of faith. True saving faith always issues forth in obedience. It was that way with Abram. It's that way with us. When God calls Abram and tells him to go out from his country, he responds with faith-filled obedience. This is an obedience that proceeds from faith in God's promise and God's call. So now I want to ask you to turn to Hebrews 11. Maybe you were there at the start of the message. Now I want us to look at that passage briefly as we begin to draw to a close. Hebrews chapter 11 is a passage that illuminates this particular account in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. 2,000 years on, the writer to the Hebrews has this exact episode in his mind as he writes. Hebrews 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. It includes the stories and trials of faith that mark the lives of many faithful saints gone before. And in Hebrews 11, we learn that the faith of these men and women is understood to be a paradigm for our faith now, even as our faith is fixed on better promises and fuller revelation. All right, so let's read in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. So stop there. What would this mean for Abram? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. God had made promises to Abram, and his hope is to be fixed on those promises. He has faith in the word of the Lord and in the promise of God. It is the assurance of things hoped for. God is going to give me a child. God is going to make a great nation out of my family. God is going to bring apparently blessing to all the nations of the world through me. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And remember, brothers and sisters, faith functions in Abram's life in the exact same way faith functions in our lives. So, so I don't want to hear any of us ever make this mistake. Old Testament saints were not saved by their obedience. You know that, right? It's not like under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, people were saved by their law-keeping. It was never that way. People have only ever been saved by the grace of God through faith in the promises of God. The difference between us in the New Covenant, this side of the cross, and Abram 4,000 years ago is that we have more revelation and even greater promises. He had the promises in seed form. As we'll see next week, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 3, the gospel was preached to Abram, saying, in you all the families of the world will be blessed. Did he understand the gospel in exactly the way we understand it today? No, he did not. But what he did have was the gracious promise of God, knowing that his salvation and his deliverance would be established through God's unilateral action. And so it is with us. He was saved by faith. We are saved by faith. But now look on at verse 8. Now we get to the episode in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. Verse 8, by faith, 
Abraham obeyed. By faith, Abraham obeyed. You see, the writer to the Hebrews is making the link and the connection between faith and obedience more explicit. And notice he doesn't say, by obedience, Abraham had faith. No, it says, by faith, Abram obeyed. See, the Bible doesn't commend legalism or blind obedience born out of mere willpower or slavish obligation. Rather, our obedience, brothers and sisters, like Abram's, must proceed from faith in God and faith in His promises. The kind of obedience God is after is obedience that is rendered in the context of relationship with God and trust in God. This is the obedience that pleases the Lord. And by the way, this is the obedience that is pleasing to us as well. Obedience that holds in view God and His promises and His good purposes. I am obeying Him whom I love and the one who I trust and the one who has pledged His covenant to me. Him will I obey. You see, that's faith working itself out in obedience. But what we must appreciate at this point in Abram's story is that faith always issues forth in obedience. Imperfect obedience, yes. Faltering obedience, obedience that will sometimes include failure. We're going to see some massive failures in Abram's life. But obedience nonetheless. True saving faith always produces obedience. And so it did in Abram's case. Looking again at verse 8, and I'm almost done. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And look at this. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I don't mean to be at all irreverent, but it says, though, God tells Abraham, I want you to go out to the land that I will show you. Okay, I'm going to go out. Right or left? He went out not knowing where he was going. In other words, his faith was operative, and his obedience was active, even as he didn't know the future. He didn't even know where he would be sleeping next month. He didn't know if they'd be attacked by wolves or wild dogs out there somewhere in the wilderness. He didn't know what was going to happen, how this was going to impact his wife Sarai or indeed all his household. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know exactly how these promises would be fulfilled. But what did Abram have? He had the word of the Lord, and he had God's promise, and that was enough for him. So so here's the material point. Our faith is not based on our lives working out exactly as we want them to. It does not require that we have answers to every question that we might have. It does not require that we know exactly how God is working this or that thing for our good. It doesn't doesn't require that we know exactly where we're going to be 10 years from now or even next week. All that faith requires is the promises of God. And with that, faith is content which means also all obedience requires. Brothers and sisters, all obedience requires is to have the sure word and promise of the Lord. God doesn't have to tell you exactly how this or that thing is going to make sense in your life in order for you to be obedient to his call. You don't have to understand, Lord, I know you say that you're working all things together for my good, but this really doesn't look like it, and gee, while I'm obeying you, it really seems to be hurting me in some ways. You don't have to know an answer to that question in order to obey the Lord. Abram went out not knowing where he was going, but he knew who was going with him. He knew who was leading him. He knew who was with him every step of the way. He knew the word of the Lord, and he knew God's promise. Now, you may say, well, yeah, I mean, if God came to me like that and spoke to me in that way and arrested me in the way that He arrested Abram, well, yeah, I I would have the faith and I would certainly obey and I would do the same thing, but our situation is different. God's never talked to me like that. Has He not? What promises do you have? What promises do we have? 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. I will not leave you as orphans. I go to prepare a place for you. He will complete the work that he has begun in us. To all who call on the name of the Lord, he will give everlasting life. That one day all of our tears will be bottled up. And that God will make all things right. That we'll be given final sight. You have these promises. They're all over the Bible. Friends, it's all we need. It's all we need to follow the Lord in obedience. To trust his will and to trust his ways. We ought to follow our father Abram. Even if we go out and answer his call and step out in obedience and in faith, not knowing exactly where we're going. God, through his promises and through his immutable will and through his sure word will give us all that we need. That's all that faith needs and that's all that obedience needs. My final word to you is this. Those here who are outside of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer in the things that I have been saying. The Lord calls you to the very same thing that he calls his people to day by day. We're called to turn from our sin and to believe in the promises of God and to proceed in obedience on the basis of his promises, on the basis of his love. Here's the wonderful thing, and I hope you come back next week, but I just got to give this to you now. God promises that through Abram, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And what we learn in the New Testament is that that means Abraham's son would come. And through him, all the nations of the world, many of them represented here this morning, would hear of the Savior's love and would have a way of salvation. Because God called Abram out of darkness and into light, out of the place of idol worship into the purposes of God, that same call can be issued to us as well. And on the ground of God's word, I issue that call to you this morning. That if you turn from your sin and from your sorrow and from your darkness and from your night, and if you embrace the promise of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a savior for sinners, who shed his blood so that men and women could be saved, if you repent and turn from your sin and put your faith in those promises, even as Abram put his faith in God's promises, the sure word of the Lord is that you will be saved. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, if... if our lives were different and if we lived in a different age and if we if we were there in perhaps the camp of the tribe of Adam and Eve and we heard the news of Cain shedding his brother's blood or if we could have somehow been there aboard with Noah seeing you flooding the world and overwhelming sinful and rebellious man by the flood, even still working deliverance for Noah and his family, if we could have been there on the outskirts of Babel and seen what your hand had done, if we could have been there in Genesis 11, verse 26, we would be without hope and without God in the world. Who who could have anticipated what you would do? We would not have expected such lavish grace and such mercy to be shown to sinful men and women like us. We thank you for the mysterious and glorious and wonderful way that you have worked redemption and salvation for the peoples of the world. All of our hope is bound up in your initiative, in your determination to be gracious and loving in ways that we have never deserved. None of us has done anything to commend ourselves to you, only those things that would condemn us. We look only to you and your promise through your son Jesus for salvation. We pray that you would give us the gift of faith, the gift of repentance to turn from our sins and to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. For all of us, follow you and have been united to your own dear son, we pray, we pray, help us. We get so distracted and we get so downcast. We pray that you would fix our faith, attach our faith to your promises, that we would keep them ever in view, 
And that as we seek to walk in obedience, that obedience would proceed from hearts that have trusted in the Lord and are holding fast to His promises. Help us, help us, Lord, to walk in faith-filled obedience. So many in this room dealing with uncertainty and with anxiety and with fear and with doubt and depression and discouragement. We never have a good reason to be fearful about the future if we are in your purposes if we have your promises. And so please, Lord, give us that measure of faith that would overcome fear, that would overcome doubt, and that would fuel an obedient life of following after you, our Lord, through our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.